morning, Pranab. This is the first episode of the new feature that we have launched today called Conversations. I'm Ashok Kotwal, the Editor-in-Chief of uh, Ideas for India. And I'm going to speak to Professor Pranab Bardhan, who's a Professor Emeritus at uh, Berkeley. We're going to talk about a topic, left versus right. And I'll explain in a minute what it means, but Pranab has uh, written extensively on various aspects of this topic. Pranab, over my lifetime, I mean the entire post-war era, left and right were well-defined terms. And they were kind of cast in Marxian terms that, you know, the left tried for the protection and well-being of the working class and uh, right worried much more about the entrepreneurs and uh, capital owners where incentives mattered. Now, when India became independent, you know, there's a whole spectrum of political parties, each distinguished, differentiated itself from others on how left they are or how right they are in the Marxian terms. For example, we had the whole spectrum starting you know, CPM, CPI, various socialist parties, and then uh, Congress uh, sitting somewhere in the middle. And uh, on the extreme right, we had Swatantra Party, which was a libertarian party. But this was not just India. Throughout Europe, as well as the uh, United States, that was the situation in Britain, Labour Party represented the interests of the working class and uh, conservatives or Tories uh, represented the interests of the capital owners and entrepreneurs. US, it was a similar kind of split, Democrats, Republicans, and in fact, all over the world. So when somebody talked in terms of left versus right, we knew that the, uh, the tensions between political parties were uh, really the tensions between two kinds of economic ideology. And this continued. I mean, in, in fact, all the different struggles that took place, including the Cold War, Vietnam War, even the uh, local struggles, uh, Maggie Thatcher's wars on uh, minors or Reagan's attempt to destroy the union movement. They were all exactly split according to these ideological differences. But in the 90s, globalization arrived and it changed the world topsy-turvy. Very, very rapidly, what we saw was the meaning of the left and right change. The things that we had never contemplated started happening instead of this uh, struggle between economic ideologies, it was replaced by cultural wars. And um, culture is again something that uh, people could define themselves. But um, the resentment toward big bad capitalists uh, from the working class changed to resentment of the educated elite who seemed to run the show. What do you think happened that it changed so suddenly and slightly differently across uh, different countries? 
but uh, we, are, we are now hearing the slow drumbeat of uh, illiberal uh, political movements all over the world. How did this happen? So that's a very large question. Let me take different aspects of it. Yes, in fact, the, the term left-right, it started with actually from the French Revolution time. The origin of the term left and right was due to how the members of the French National Assembly after the revolution sat. Usually those who were more for the progressive ones sat on the left and the, then the, that's how it started. And you are right that in large parts of the world, it actually, the differentiation was in terms of these economic issues that you mentioned. But let me show you even long before globalization, I'm going to come to the issue of globalization in a minute. Long before globalization, there were ambiguities, even in this left-right distinction in many countries. United States, the issue of abortion, gun rights, in more recent decades, gay rights, those became issues taken by the right wing, not the left wing. So the part of the right-left distinction in the United States for quite some decades, even before globalization, was on the on cultural issue. Now let me give you the example of India. If you think about it, the distinction between the left and Gandhians, where was the distinction? Of course, on Gandhians tried a different economic strategy compared to the Nehruvians and left, but there was also some, you might call it cultural, but non-economic issue. And what I have in mind is how do you look at the state? Usually the left wants the state to be important. In the early 1990s, I wrote an article on this issue. I openly said that the left-right distinction seems to be less relevant in the left-right distinction in the usual way what is more relevant is how do you look at the state vis-a-vis -vis society? So Gandhians and the left had a different way of looking at state and society. Gandhians emphasized local community and underemphasized the state, whereas the left emphasizes the state. And paradoxically, which is the other group which emphasizes the state? At that time, Jansang, later BJP, they want a strong state. So it's paradoxical that BJP, which Jansang before time of globalization, they would emphasize the state, so the left, far left, the communists want a strong state. And those who don't want a strong state emphasize society, community, etc. where the Gandhians, subaltern historians, uh, environmentalists, though they wanted the local community much stronger. I'll give this as an example that even though historically and particularly in Europe, the left-right distinction has been mainly on uh, the issue of state versus market, actually. Uh, those who emphasize market were called right. Uh, those who emphasize state were called the left. But I'm saying that the United States and India, 
these other distinctions were important, where non-economic issues uh, were important and where how you look at the state vis-a-vis -vis the local community were important. So in that sense, already before globalization, there's this complexity. And then after globalization, as you rightly pointed out, because of the uh, China shock in the United States and also uh, somewhat in Europe, the workers uh, started going against uh, the Democrats. There also, I would emphasize this issue that you brought up, question of liberal elite. I think it has to do with one important economic issue. Over time, when we talk about the distinction or the, or the contradictions between capital and labor, capital is not the same capital as 50 years back. The nature of capital has changed. Capital is not just physical capital. Over time, even before globalization, another type of capital became increasingly important, what economists call human capital. And human capital is partly about education. So as the educated professionals became more important, they are also capitalists of a sort. They are more in the business of human capital. So if you call them human capitalists, over time became more important as technology progressed, their human capital became very important. So, and the other aspect of is, those who have education, those who have human capital, they can adapt much more easily than blue collar workers. Blue collar workers is very difficult to change jobs or skills, whereas education, and that's one of the major advantages of education, gives you more adaptability. That's where the globalization came. And it's not just globalization. The other reason working classes lost jobs in the rich countries, automation. So the educated became much more cosmopolitan because they, that professional job, they could get anywhere. Well, not anywhere, but they're much easier to get. So they became much more pro-globalization over time. For these two reasons, their adaptability is more to globalization. And secondly, human capital became much more important in the production process for both reasons. And I may add um, one more thing, is that um, the educated elite had uh, tenure jobs, so to speak, right? They had jobs that um, were uh, uh, stable. They were not constantly afraid of losing their jobs. And that gives, that sort of changes your perspective between now and tomorrow, right? So, uh, so their priorities became oriented much more toward long-term, right? Like climate change. Whereas for um, the workers, especially in the US, they work on fossil fuel industry. Again, there, they feel their jobs are threatened and the elite are actually taking the policies um, way beyond their horizons and they resented that. I understand the point you are making, but the only difference I'll have, uh, when you said that the educated sector, educated people have tenure jobs, that's probably too uh, between you and me because we work for public enterprises. 
but in the private so relatively sector, stable jobs, I think. Yes. Even the professionals are changing jobs all the time. For example, in the United States, even your pensions are not uh, are secure. So I would say it is not, yes, I, I, I agree that there is some bit of that, that your jobs are much more stable. But I think it is more the adaptability issue that I mentioned. Even in the private sector, you lose your job. If you're educated, it's easier for you to get a job. So the adaptability issue that I'm talking about, this job stability issue that you are bringing, I would regard them as part of the same general scheme of things. They had a different attitude. But if I distinguish between adaptability and stability, then the issue that you are bringing up as how do you look at the long term will differ a little bit in the sense that it's much more cultural. Education by itself adds a cultural value to your mind. You become interested in other issues, including and cosmopolitan issues. Climate change is a cosmopolitan issue. I'll give you a counter example where even the poor people become interested in environment through religion. Some religious groups think God's earth needs to be protected. Some of the recent trends where people turn against the educated elite, fine. They also turn against the, the very sense of what the elite are pursuing. For example, science. Why are these uh, uh, populist right-wing groups turning against vaccines and uh, basically rejecting the findings of the research community? May I go back again that this is not recent? Gandhiji, for example, quite often said things against modern science because he thought science can be destructive, and which is true. There are many aspects of science which have been destructive. In fact, in India, if you follow the Gandhians plus the subaltern historians and somebody whom I, who's a friend of mine who falls in that middle category, in the, in the middle of the, these two, is this probably India's one of foremost social scientists is Ashish Nandi. He has written several articles against modern science. Essentially, the destructive aspects of modern science. There was a very famous dispute between Gandhi and Tagore. There was a Bihar earthquake in 1934. Gandhiji said that the earthquake is how God is punishing us for untouchability. And Tagore very furiously opposed that. He said, yeah, I'm against untouchability, but don't say it, earthquake in which so many people died is God's way. So what I'm saying is <laughs> that kind of an issue um, has come up in other contexts. Was there a Gandhi, like this kind of thinking? Outside India also, there, there are groups which are environmentalists. They are not completely anti-science, but they think some aspects of science need to be moderated. So I think this is ultimately I think a cultural issue. Pranam, yeah. you have written um, 
quite extensively about the differences between what happened in U.S. and Europe. One thing that uh, stayed in my mind uh, was that um, we economists always uh, emphasize the gains from trade, but underemphasize that there are winners and losers in the trade game. And uh, the reason um, the loss of jobs was not a big part of the resentment of European workers was because the compensation there was uh, higher than in the U.S. The safety net was better. And indeed, the thing that we forgot this and that large uh, sections of U.S. manufacturing were the losers and they were not adequately compensated. But in Europe, it was uh, the refugee crisis and the uh, Muslim immigrants and so on. So it started out straight away with resentment of incoming foreigners and so on. Uh, so uh, can you say something about these differences across countries? Yes, in fact, um, US-Europe uh, distinction clearly shows that uh, the, the issue of immigration is so important, relatively speaking, not so much the China shock, uh, because China shock was there in Euro Europe as well. But that was less prominent because of the safety net. However, there is also another issue which I have written about related to this is this. If, if it were mainly an economic issue of job loss, income loss, etc., then the question one has to answer, why did the workers go to the right? Why not go to the far left? Because far left was anti-globalization, far left was stronger protection of workers. Yeah. And if you try to answer that question, culture becomes very important. Far left were not providing an answer because far left also support immigration. Far left is want um, abortion rights, gay rights, and all that. So the workers deviated from the far left on those cultural issues. And in the specific United States case, gun rights. However, immigration is not just a cultural issue. Immigration obviously is an economic issue. And that's related to the job insecurity issue that you mentioned uh, before. And again, the, the economic uh, aspect of the job uh, issue in Europe was less prominent because of the safety net. There, they were mostly saying uh, that these uh, immigrants are coming and becoming a strain on the welfare state. And let me give you the example from uh, so there are some studies of the analysis in the 2020 presidential election in the United States. They find majority of less educated white working classes voted for Trump. They now find a significant, not majority, a significant proportion of Hispanics and a significant proportion of blacks voted for Trump. And if you try to understand why, then you see cultural issue trumps the economic issue there. So, and there is a divide no, there. Why, why do you say that? Because the 
Blacks and Hispanics were also affected by job losses. And through the, yes. I mean, people yes. who voted twice for Obama voted for Trump. Because they were divided. So if you ask the Hispanic voter or the black voter, do you want minimum wages, which the Democrats were in favor of? Most of them will say yes. But are you in favor of abortion rights? Are you in favor of gay rights, etc.? They will quite, they're socially conservative. Uh, economic issues quite often they were with the Democrats, but on the cultural issue, they're the Republicans. And that's why the majority of blacks and Hispanics voted for the Democrats, but a significant fraction voted for Trump. Now, if I may now go back to India, uh, what I uh, originally said that this distinction between left and right, if you look at Johnson or RSS before the origin of uh, these uh, right-wing parties, RSS is mainly a cultural organization. What is the RSS uh, economic policy? It's economic nationalism. What does economic nationalism mean? Protection, uh, everything, eh, what now Indian leaders are talking about, Atma Nirvan, that's an RSS economic nationalism issue. Now, if you ask me which other party is economically nationalistic in that sense for protection, import substituting industrialization is the far left in India. Quite often, many of the communists want protection, anti-globalization. So there, it's not the right left in the traditional sense. You see both the RSS and some of the communists are equally economically nationalistic in that sense. So it becomes much more <laughs> complex that way. That's true. I mean, India itself was not really affected by globalization at all. Well, uh, I would say India has been affected by globalization. So the products that the poor buy are made in China. You probably know that in Mumbai, even the Ganesh uh, yeah. <laughs> idols are, are made in China. I think, again, this is a generally true, just in India. In fact, recently I saw a survey on attitude to globalization. A large number of countries, developing countries are pro-globalization, by and large. Yeah. And developed countries, rich countries, yeah. uh, not all, but uh, some, uh, particularly the most pro-globalization countries, Nigeria, one of the poorest countries, <laughs> and one of the most anti-globalization is France. Attitude to globalization is not a major distinction in developing countries and particularly in India, but there is again this peculiar convergence between right and far left. Far left is anti-globalization and RSS is anti-globalization in that sense. And I think one is to distinguish between the economic and cultural issue. But RSS is primarily a cultural organ. They want a Hindu Rashtra. In India, the right wing now is more identified with this cultural issue of Hindu majoritarianism. And this has been the case in some other countries in, in Turkey, it's Muslim majoritarianism. So Erdogan is their leader to some extent in Brazil. Bolsonaro gets the vote of the white evangelicals, Christian evangelicals and so on. But I think religious majoritarianism is the major division 
between on right and left in countries like india yeah the interesting thing is that uh, with uh, this shift to the the cultural uh, nationalism somehow there is a hankering for a st- strong man some autocrat who would uh, set things right kind of loss of faith in demo- demo- democratic structures so how did everything that we have been saying crystallize into that let me see different people mean different things by populism most economists essentially mean populists are those who are short termism those who don't look at the long run interests go for popular short term gimmicks but if you read the political science literature uh, on populism most of them would say populism in that sense is is illiberal populism wants to get rid of these liberal processes which delay things hmm. a leader like trump or orban in uh, hungary or putin in russia uh, erdogan in turkey these leaders tell them i will deliver you the goods uh, but i don't want these liberal processes or what is called due process which takes a lot of time and that is consistent with the majoritarianism because majoritarians don't like the minority rights one of the reasons why they're so angry with the liberals is because the liberals they would say would appease the minorities left liberals in india would appease the muslims left liberals in turkey would appease the kurds left liberals in europe would appease the immigrant muslims president marco in france there his party is now using a term called islamo left left which likes the islamic people so going back to your populism it becomes essentially kind of majoritarianism trampling upon minority rights and in a sense this is a major liberal value and that's where i have myself in my writings distinguish between two kinds of nationalism the nationalism that indian leaders and leaders in turkey trump orban in hungary putin in russia have is what i would call ethno nationalism nationalism based on some ethnic group ethnic pride the other kind of nationalism is what i call or some other people have called civic nationalism in which nationalism is based on some constitutional liberal values if you take the two largest democracies these started with civic nationalism the nationalism of gandhi tagore nehru ambedkar i think that this latter nationalism is akin to what we experience uh, uh, during sports events right oh, yes. india is playing cricket with england and a lot of us get very tense and we want our team to win with right. this olympics 
In Europe, it takes the form of soccer. But when does it combine with ethnic nationalism? In football, for example, many of the European teams now, if you look at the skin color of the players, half of them are blacks. And so the ethnic nationalism is having a problem with that football nationalism. All the factors you mentioned uh, leading to this kind of uh, right-wing populism existed, right, in the post-war era, almost uh, 1990 or so. Now, what change did the uh, advent of uh, social media um, had, had a major impact on uh, this kind of thing becoming possible? I would emphasize there are several factors. Let me emphasize right now two things that I have not talked about so far. One is just now what you mentioned, social media. Of course, social media can be a good vehicle for left-wing ideas as well. But now increasingly data are showing that the more false you know, something that you put in the social media, something you start some idea or a rumor or what have you, the more outrageous it is, it spreads faster. Bad ideas spread faster. And this is now documented. There are, there are now examples. Um, the uh, conspiracy theories. Conspiracy theories spread like wildfire in social media. And there are psychologists are now writing about this. Why is it that the right wing can use the social media much more than the left wing? It's because of this uh, human psychology or mob psychology of bad ideas, conspiracies, uh, rumors, etc. More outrageous things spread much faster, and that made, gave the gave the uh, right wing an advantage. This kind of device that people use to kind of centralize power, you know, anybody who loves your party's ideas, your ideas. The mob that uh, invaded U.S. Congress, uh, Trump called them patriots. And same thing is going on in all these right-wing groups. Where does that come from, patriots? Because it's going back to the ethnic nationalism. Uh, these patriots were invading the U.S. Congress. They were all fanatic supporters of Trump. To what did Trump stand for them? Make America great. And the same thing in India. The guy who is lynching Muslims um, he thinks he's a patriotic because these are traitors. Something else happened uh, in this recent period. To me, it's extremely important. The decline of trade unions. All over the world, trade unions have gone down. The decline of trade union itself is an endogenous uh, variable. But for the timing, if I regard it as an exogenous, take it as an exogenous variable, decline of trade union institutions or labor organizations is very important in this cultural economic uh, distinction that we have discussed earlier. The blue collar workers had a sense of belonging to a shared institution. And the trade union was not just a wage bargaining. Trade union was also a cultural social institution for the workers. I have personally known workers in Europe who regarded the trade union as a kind of local club where you go for cultural activities, but with the decline of trade unions, there has been a cultural void 
That's where the populist uh, right-wing cultural issues fill that cultural void. The left needs to fill in that cultural void. And with talking about uh, left instead, I find in United States, but a little bit less in Europe, is more going in the identity issues like Black Lives Matter. Those are important. But if you overemphasize it, that gives uh, the right handle because you are not filling the void that the blue collar workers uh, are, are facing. Is, is this why people are started talking about community, role of community? That's where the left-right distinction is, is somewhat vague. I gave you the example of Gandhiji. Gandhiji openly says in Hind Saraj that I'm an anarchist. Uh, he doesn't believe in the state. And this is where the Gandhi-Ambedkar debate was about. Ambedkar, for understandable reasons, said community, the village community is a cesspool of caste uh, discrimination, oppression. Um, so local community has this problem. I'm glad that Raghu Rajan has come out with a book called The Third Pillar. And the third pillar is community. I have written on decentralization. And decentralization is about taking some of the power from the state and bringing it to the local community because local community have more information, coordination problems sometimes um, are easier, et cetera. So there are many things, including environmental, by the way, uh, irrigation water, uh, grazing land, forestry. These are local environmental issues which is difficult to solve by the centralized state. For example, America, who is in favor of state rights? The right wing. They don't want the federal government. They want state rights so they can go on oppressing the blacks. And the same oppression of Dalits in India. Khap panchayats in Haryana get all the power. It is power in the community. And just remember what, just then think what will happen to the Dalits. So I think the, it's a com community to me is a complex issue. Uh, I want decentralization. At the same time, I want some uh, checks uh, on that community power. I think people, people operate at two levels. They look for what regime would be good for them and their families, uh, individually. But also the appeal of patriotism, doing something for... Uh, a higher collective, a nation, is huge. I mean, it's surprising how many young, millions of young people um, are willing to go to war, right? Uh, when, when it's their life. And, and it is this appeal of uh, doing collective good. And the, the first kind of nationalism that you mentioned is very good at harnessing. A lot of dictators have risen to power on that basis. So sure. What? There is no reason why you cannot inspire people nationalistically, but through the civic nationalism. Let me give you an example from the United States, which is in some sense, um, they started with civic nationalism with the Constitution. Think of the American Civil War, the middle of the 19th century. Now, Abraham Lincoln, who was fighting the pro-slavery South, if you remember his speeches were invoking civic nationalism, Gettysburg Address starts with saying, a nation that is born in liberty 
or something like that. So what is he saying? We are a nation and not born of ethnicity. We are a nation born on some values of which liberty is very important for us. And that's, he was bringing it up to fight against slavery or interests of slavery. So it is possible he won that war and he obviously mobilized a large army. I know it's more difficult because things like uh, uh, Hindu nationalism or things like Christian nationalism sometimes appeals to your emotions. But there, the reason why social movements are important is to say Hinduism is, is not just about anti-Muslim. Hinduism has a lot of other values. Large part of Hinduism preach tolerance. So you can even organize Hindus as Hindus, but not necessarily as anti-Muslim. Okay, with that, I think we should bring our conversation to an end. Um, it was very nice uh, talking to you. We covered a lot of space. And I think you have unusual insight to deliver on each aspect of this. And I congratulate you for that. Thank you so much, Pranav. Thank you, Ashok, for inviting me. Thank you.